Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ian Burroughs. It's February 7, 2020. We're here at the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks uh, for the invite. The first question for you, as we start everyone, is why wine? Oh, uh, that's a great question, Rich. Um, I sort of found my way into wine through hospitality. Um, so the question could have been why hospitality, I suppose. <laughs> um, my, my grandparents owned a pub um, in southeast London. I was born and raised just outside London. And um, I was always interested in the hospitality side and of, of business. And um, I would say that uh, I, I learned to appreciate a healthy, I had a healthy respect for alcohol from a very young age um, and noticed how it was, uh, the pub was uh, a place for people to come and socialize and, 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 and make friends. That always appealed to me. Um, as I grew uh, and, and started to think about what my career might be, I gravitated towards um, food. Um, and so uh, after about 15 years as a chef, cook, chef, apprentice, <laughs> restaurateur, um, I decided to move from the back of house um, into the service side mm. of the hospitality industry. And the creative side of cooking um, was very enjoyable for me, so I wanted to keep that sort of creativity mm. alive in um, what I did. Um, food and wine pairings had been a big part of my um, career the last few years, especially as a restaurateur, but mm. as a chef, um, I'd done a lot of food and wine pairings, was lucky enough to work with some really great, great people along the way who, who also used use that same kind of business model. Mm -hmm. um, and um, when I decided to go into the, into the front of house side of the business, I kind of uh, decided that it would be great to, to, to start on the sommelier track, on the wine, wine steward. Um, um, I enjoy collecting wines myself. Uh, enjoy the business side of things and realize that running a running running a restaurant um, there was a you know a, a large part of the um, a large part of the success of a restaurant is um, is through the sales and service of wine mm -hmm. so as you got into the to that side uh, you had this you had a pretty significant hospitality background already tell me about learning wine that way versus kind of warning it as a pairing, uh, the formal education. Yeah, so yeah, coming in it from, from the business side and not the necessarily the winery operational side. Um, we obviously have a, 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 a sort of a daily reminder of why, we're, why we drink wine. Um, and that is, well, f for me anyway, that is as an accompaniment to, to food. Um, you know, I think most people in the industry now would, would um, agree that uh, wine is for the most part better appreciated um, when it's when it, it, it's there as an accompaniment to, to fine food or, or any food really um, so I realized pretty early on that um, well, I 
I appreciated early on that everybody's taste is different. Um, there's no like one great wine. You know, it's it's very subjective, um, and um, being able to keep that in the back of our minds as we're selling, serving, recommending um, wines is very important. And then as now as a winemaker, I find that equally important. Um, you know, what I want to do um, is is just a just a small snapshot of what mm -hmm. the possibilities are, um, and and keeping an open mind to that. So, you know, a winemaker <clears throat> is always going to end up making wine that appeals to him or her. Um, but a great winemaker will always appreciate the other things that mm -hmm. the other possibilities. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Tell, tell me about the, the formalized process then of becoming uh, sort of certified by the advanced, uh, sorry, certified by the Court of Master yeah. Sommeliers. Yeah, um, it was, it's a pretty rigorous examination, set of examinations. Um, there are four levels to the Court of Master Sommelier examinations. Um, I've, uh, I graduated through to the advanced. I took that on a couple of occasions. You, you either pass or you fail. There's no, <laughs> there's no like middle ground there. Um, so um, I, I took a pretty um, sort of a, a speedy course through the court. Um, I really didn't start studying wine until 2005 formally. Um, uh, it was just after I had sold my restaurant in Adelaide in South Australia and I'd made the conscious decision to move away from the back of house to front of house. Um, I'd been, <laughs> I, great story when I decided I was going to leave Australia, I was going to go back to France. I'd learned to cook in France so I decided I, I wanted to go back there to uh, kind of embark on the next sort of career move in wine. And a good friend of mine in the Barossa Valley, um, who is a, a well-known winemaker, said to me, I hear you're closing down Durham's. I said, yep, yep, we're, we're done with that. He's like, what are you going to do next? I was like, I'm going to go into the wine industry. And he's like, well, where are you going to work? I was like, oh, I'm going to go back to Paris, but I have no idea what exactly, where exactly. And he said, don't worry about it. I've, I've got a buddy there. You can go and work for him. He's, he, he's got this little wine bar. So I, I said, well, what's his name? He said, oh, it's Tim Johnson. You probably haven't heard of him. I said, oh, no idea who the guy is. So anyway, just it was the early, early parts of the internet, you know, Googling. I Googled him, a couple of articles came up, and um, he owns a, a wine bar in, in Paris called Juveniles. He's been around for about 35, 40 years now, and a great little wine bar. And, uh, and, and lo and behold, I, I, I landed in, in Paris and uh, Dave had already made the call for me to, to Tim, um, had an interview and, and started immediately with him. It, I feel like from 2005 onwards, I've, um, I, it's, it's been a, um, a really wonderful set of events that's just you know, kind of flowed on that's allowed me to do what I'm currently doing. Um, kind of taken my hands off of the wheel, as it were, and it's all kind of it's all it's all worked out. Mm. But I spent a couple of years with Tim at um, at Juvenile's Wine Bar, uh, doing some buying with him. Um, he'd been doing it long enough uh, to know what he wanted. Um, I got good guidance there. We could we could call him a mentor. Mm. And was was not for an extraordinary long period of time, but for a couple of years. Um, and then I was 
kind of spotted. I was on the on the you know the, the restaurant bar floor every night that we were open. Um, that was kind of my my main duty was running the bar for him, and. I had a, a few guests that would come in regularly to see me. We were we were one of just a handful of like all English speaking mm -hmm. bars in Paris. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of interesting characters come in there, um, a lot of industry. Mm -hmm. I met some really wonderful people from the George Sank Hotel who also helped um, develop my interest in fine wine and we went traveling together throughout Europe to, to some of the great wine regions. Um, but this one chap in particular that would come in um, eventually offered me a job. Um, so I, I went off to work for him in another restaurant in Paris that was about 300 years old, a place called Maison La Perrousse. Um, I'd actually already worked there as a chef. <laughs> about seven years before. Um, and so I was returning to the team, but as uh, the, the, the person that was holding the keys to the cellar, I, I, you know, I, I, was, I was a sommelier. I'm not sure if I would call myself a sommelier at that time, but um, certainly um, it, was, it was a wonderful experience to, to hold the keys to a cellar with you know, millions of, of euros worth of wine and be the first sort of English speaker on a restaurant floor of such a with with such heritage in Paris so yeah that's pretty, that's pretty incredible yeah. I'm curious what you what you're, you you mentioned the kind of the idea that there's no perfect wine the, the yeah. wine has to you have to you, tell me about learning that process of not just pairing food with wine but also pairing people with wine and, and how, <laughs> how you how you get educated in that in that realm to feel comfortable making that kind of uh, assessment um, that's it's it's more instincts, I think. I, I, I find it, um, that's a really great question, Rich, and, and, and one that I've not really thought about um, before. Um, I think it's to do with listening and um, trying to make a connection outside of wine with someone. If we were talking about uh, a conversation that you need to have quite quickly in a, in a restaurant service situation that may, may be a minute or, or even less. Um, and to, uh, I, think, I think you can learn which questions to ask mm -hmm. and listen intently. And, and, and more, more than anything else, I think, I think it's watching tables interact when you're not there. I mean, lone diners, pretty pretty difficult to, to gauge although you don't have other distractions of diners on the table when you're asking them about wine and trying to figure out what they would like to drink but um, but with, uh, with with group situations um, a quick sort of five minute study of the table of their interactions and and you know from the minute they walk through the door I think a sommelier is a good sommelier is, is probably watching uh, for cues um, but but I've but I've been surprised so many times. We we can't help but <laughs> we can't help but make um, assessments um, in our in our minds that that uh, are, are far from uh, far from the truth, far from the actual uh, uh, situation that you've got in front of you. Um, uh, yeah, I don't want to be too cryptic, but it's it's very easy to 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 look at the guy that comes in ripped jeans and sneakers and say he's up for you know a fifteen dollar glass of Pinot when in fact he's he's about to kind of spend a thousand dollars on a bottle of burgundy yeah so i mean it, it happens all the time it's one of those kind of cliches i i i think that um by 
I think it's a lot of practice. We get a lot of practice in good restaurants. Um, a good sommelier will always work service. I always enjoyed working service, just like I enjoyed working service in the kitchen. I enjoyed working service in, in, on the restaurant floor. And I enjoy selling wine now. Like the people aspect, the human aspect of the business is as important to me or maybe even more so than the grape aspect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, like, I like hard physical labor and I like talking to people face to face and, and understanding what it is they might need. Um, and you know, that's been, that's a, that's a constant. It goes back to my grandfather's pub, I think, you know, every, you know, you can make it as complicated as you want, but um, a glass of, of wine or a pint of lager and two people and a packet of peanuts can be really interesting. You know, it's, it's the, <laughs> the conversation, it's the human aspect that's really cool. So at this point, you've, you've been in Paris to learn to cook, and you've been to Australia to own a restaurant, yeah. and then back to Paris, yep. and now you're working on the, in the front of the house, and, you're, and you have this cellar. So what happens next at that point? Um, so um, I was married, um, and my ex-wife and I were obviously both based in Paris. She was from the US, um, and she was trying to break in, she had successfully broken into fine dining as a chef after a few years um, in law. And um, we, d we decided that we were gonna come back to, her to come back to the States and me to come with her um, to be closer to her family. And um, we were really just fed up with the, the hustle in Paris. Um, as, as beautiful as that place is, we were both kind of like, it's, it's, go see something else, go see something new. Mm -hmm. um, and so we moved back to, well, she moved back to the States, moved to California, and we settled in the Bay Area. Um, it was, uh, that, and that was in 2008. And what did you do there? Um, I started working for um, a small restaurant that was based in the Russian River Valley. Um, and it was really there that the, the quartermaster sommelier examinations kind of uh, took my interest. I was working for a master sommelier there. Um, and um, then uh, opened up a very small um, uh, winery um, uh, based in Carneros in Sonoma. And um, when I was ready to leave there, I was approached by um, the business partner of Dominique Crenn, uh, Atelier Crenn in San Francisco, which at that point had really just opened. I think they'd been open about a year. I think they just got their first Michelin star and they were looking for um, somebody that they, they had a, they they'd currently had a, a maitre d', maitre d'hotel who was looking after the wine list mm -hmm. and they wanted to kind of get somebody in to specialize in that, that area. They, they'd, they'd quickly realized that um, to support that very intricate um, and expensive cuisine that Dominique was developing there, uh, they needed a wine program to go with it. Um, something that was, you know, a fusion, I always say it was a fusion of like the hipster bottlings and the and the classics. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, no one that was too kind of dogmatic about um, any one style of wine. So I apparently fitted that. <laughs> so you're basically building a wine program that hasn't really existed before, building it more it, or less from the ground up. Yeah, it was it was nascent, yeah. Um, they, they had uh, originally tried to craft a pretty interesting beverage program. They didn't have a full liquor license, so they couldn't serve hard, hard liquor spirits. 
Um, but they were developing this, and, and, and kudos to the guy that did it, but um, I, I couldn't continue it. It was a very labor-intensive, but it was basically a cocktail program based on, on wines, mm -hmm. lightly fortified wines, um, vermouths and things like that. Um, and, and, and it worked quite well, but I think it, it perhaps was a little bit avant-garde um, for the for the early stages of the restaurant. So yeah, I was basically tasked with, I was given white card basically, carte blanche, just, you know, it was a month to month situation. I would, um, you know, work a month, look at my figures, see what sold, basically um, chat with Michelle, who was the business partner and Dominique, see how that, you know, how happy or unhappy they were with, with the progress. And we would just go, go like that. So that went on for about two and a half years. Um, and we, yeah, I, I think we, we did a pretty good job. <laughs> um, we, we gained our second Michelin star and we were gunning for a third Michelin star when I left and uh, they, yeah, they got their third star and now it's a, it's a, it's a small empire. <laughs> <laughs> you were on the ground floor of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was exciting times. Long hours. Uh, used to that, you know, coming from from you know, the kitchen, and you know, I'd, I'd worked long hours in Paris. So yeah, it was good. It was good. Exciting, scrappy, as I I'd like to say. <laughs> it was yeah, everything you would expect from a, a great little restaurant. I'm curious with with the carte blanche. That's that's kind of a double-edged sword because not only are you you're given all this freedom, but you're also like you don't really have a lot of restrictions or guidelines either. So yeah. if you're picking basically any wine you want, how did you go about selecting a program? Um, well, I was lucky enough when I was working in Russian River, um, and and I and I had very short amount of time. I did some work experience with uh, Michael Mina Restaurant when Raj was still in in kind of. Um, in charge of the wine program for Michael Mina restaurants. Um, and so between uh, the guys that he had working for him that I was working with alongside and in Russian River, um, it was only a short amount of time, but um, it, was, it was very immersive and um, I kind of got a feel for what people were willing to pay for and what they, what they wanted to drink with, mm -hmm. with perhaps less um, adventurous cuisine. Um, a, a little more commercial in style, a little more classic. But um, so that was the most challenging thing for me. I, I think was not really picking the wines that I knew would sell, um, but choose very. It, it was always a battle to find wines that would go with a cuisine that I was the, the most everyone on the planet is unfamiliar with. You know. <laughs> As we know, uh, Dominique's cuisine now, it's, there are more and more people um, doing that. Um, it's, you know, uh, vegetable and herb-based and lots of broths. It's both light in texture, but very, very intense in flavor and aromatic. So it's very clever food um, and very small portions. Mm -hmm. um, so substantial wines, big, heavy, rich wines don't always work. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly, um, you can... You can uh, you can be excused for putting one or two in a lineup of 20 during during a meal, but you certainly don't want a, 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 a one heavy high alcohol wine after another um, in that kind of scenario. So that that's I'm a I'm a risk taker. Um, there's no doubt about it. I love a challenge. Um, I'm not afraid to make mistakes, and and I think a lot of that time on the restaurant floor and in the cellars at Atelier Crenn um, reinforced 
those kind of philosophies for me is that it's okay to it's okay to not get it right all the time as long as you can admit that um, and 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 think fast and think on your feet and and you know if somebody it happened a lot that people would get wines that they didn't think were great with those dishes or they just didn't enjoy as a wine and and being able to be flexible is is important and I think you know that that's a chef is very important a cook is 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 very flexible I mean that's important in their in their day-to-day -day work so I, th I think all of that leads up and now as a winemaker you need to be flexible <laughs> you really don't know you really don't know what you're going to get what in, what is the, the um, chemical composition mm -hmm. of of the grape <laughs> or grapes that come in the winery until they land I mean you have a little bit of an idea you know a week out but um, you're you're pretty much going on faith um, that everything is going to be a little bit similar than the previous year mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and I've only now done it for five years so it's uh, it's still very fresh for me I'm it's a cliche we're always learning but I really am <laughs> it's it's uh, it's a, the most challenging part of 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 the work now is is trying to not is trying to get out of my own way really mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's um, partial instincts working on in instincts um, and um, and being able to say this is this is this is the philosophy I have this is this is how I would like to design the wines mm -hmm. manufacture it's you're, 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 you're moving grapes you're crushing them you're watching over them while they ferment whether or not one puts chemicals and you know mm -hmm. uh, cultured yeast um, and sulfur dioxide or whatever into the wine is really neither here nor there you're you're doing something you're manufacturing the wine you're, you're you're moving it from tank to barrel to bottle and whatever processes you use in between um, so it's being handled um, and it's really important to remember that as little as you want to do um, you still need to do something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. It's an agricultural product that is um, manufactured into a beverage. Mm -hmm. That's, mm -hmm. that, that is how I look at wine. Um, and then there are many, many layers after that. Um, um, but having a healthy understanding, healthy respect for what, that, what, that, what, what the category of beverage is, mm -hmm. is important. Absolutely. So before we get into that, the, the, the winemaking aspect, which I'm curious to dive into, uh, one more question about your work, uh, Smalley in general, not just necessarily in San Francisco, but any, any of the times when you were, when you were selecting wines, were there, were there particular finds you're proud of? Were there, were there wines you found, discovered for yourself that you were particularly proud of along the way? Um, or winemakers? I don't think I've ever, to be honest, I don't think I've ever found a wine that I haven't already, you know, heard about, read about. Like I've, I've, I've drank, I've drank wines and thought, yeah, that's amazing. That's a, that's a category that I hope will develop. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I've definitely not been the first. Like, um, I, I read um, reviews. Excuse me, I read reviews 
I've always been, um, I always felt that it's really important to, um, to listen to our peers who have more experience. Um, so, from, you know, from, for me, previous mentors um, in the wine industry, Tim, Raj and his team um, for a little bit, and then um, and then uh, Jeff Cruth at the Farmhouse Inn. I've always been, that's to name a few, um, reviewers as well, um, the British classic um, uh, wine reviewers who have been around for you know 20, 30 years. I read them a lot. So I, I would say that I've never come across a wine that I haven't already um, heard about mm -hmm. or read about. Mm -hmm. um, um, but yeah, I, I, I would say um, in, two, in 2006, when I was working in, in Paris at Juveniles, um, we would take uh, trips to Beaujolais mm -hmm. um, to see the, the producers that are now very famous here in, in, in the US, you know, the, the Kermit Lynch boys that, that he imports. Um, and they were, they were already well known and well regarded and they had been pushing against the tide of mechanization and, you know, over farming and overproduction of Beaujolais. And I remember when I tasted in their cellars thinking one day this is, you know, one day these guys will be recognized for what they're doing and these wines will be worth a lot more than what they are currently. And, and, and here we are, you know, 10 years, 15, almost 15 years later, and, and yeah, lo and behold, that's happened. But I mean, uh, one of hundreds and hundreds of sommeliers that were probably saying the same thing at that time. Every time we taste a wine, that is uh, perceived as great value. Um, we wonder why it's not more popular and why the price hasn't risen. Um, and it's it's a it's uh, it's disappointing to to think this crosses our mind. But it's like I hope no one else hears about this, right? So <laughs> we hope that these wines will always be twenty bucks a bottle. But um, inevitably, you know, word gets out. And with with social media, the internet now, it's very hard to keep a secret. You know, everybody wants. You know, you asked me, you know, is, are there special finds? Everybody wants to be the first person to find the great value, the new wine, and then suddenly it's no longer a secret and, and it's in the supply and demand shifts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Absolutely. Like when the band you love blows up, right? There's, there's a little piece yeah. of you that you lose. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, we'll, we'll have our kind of, um, yeah, our, our, our little kind of secret interests in things. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. It's just, yeah, it's just like any other industry, including, including music. So you're, tell me how you got to Oregon. That's the one thing we mm. haven't gotten to yet. Mm -hmm. How did you get here? Well, I was kind of honestly fed up of the restaurant industry. I had 50, almost 15 years as a chef and a restaurateur. Um, and, and then uh, about another five years as uh, as a sommelier, as a front of house in some capacity or another, and I was really um, kind of looking forward to taking a night off. <laughs> like, you know, it, it, it's it, it's very enjoyable, um, but um, thinking about family and you know just forming a relationship where it's not based on um, you know kissing someone goodbye in the morning and not seeing them again until the next morning mm -hmm. is, is tough. And, and um, 
and so yeah, I was just looking for like just a very small change of pace. <laughs> I mean, I'm running a couple of businesses now, and things don't seem to change that much. But at least, um, yeah, I'm 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 not um, I'm on my own schedule or to to a certain to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so that was that was really what I wanted to do is just like remove myself from. Um, from restaurant work, and um, I, um, I had met um, a winemaker and winery owner through uh, the work that I was doing at Atelier Crane in San Francisco, and um, and she offered me a, a job basically as uh, just there were four people in the winery and I was one of those four, so it's more or less sales. Mm -hmm. um, it was both. Um, sales uh, to consumers that were visiting the winery but also doing some market visits um, in the US and trying to develop some new markets in other parts of the world for for her so I came up originally to to, to, to help with that um, it's a very well-known known winery and um, after a few months um, decided that what we were doing there I could do for myself and be a little more independent um, so so I started uh, my brokerage company, basically, um, and it was. I saw a niche in the market. Um, you know, we, we we spoke often at that winery about how um, the um, the buyers, the sommeliers, um, for the most part, but a few retailers as well in the Portland area and in Oregon in general, um, were. They were spoilt for choice um, for for Oregon wines. Who obviously we had at that time probably seven or eight hundred um, very good wineries set up in the valley um, and some of those were producing a couple of different brands as well so you know it doesn't take long you've got a lot of choice of, of Pinot Noir in particular um, and um, and I realized that um, Oregon wineries weren't really getting their getting the love that they deserved locally um, a lot of um, people were coming to me and asking you know what they would what they were doing wrong, you know? Do you are you seeing the same problem here? And da, 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 da. so, I mean, it's a small, close-knit community, and and I quickly realised that um, there was a niche for um, a brokerage company that sp specifically took care of the local uh, small family wineries. Um, perhaps they had two or three. Um, distributors throughout the US and they really wanted to kind of sell more wine in the state mm -hmm. and and so that's how Consolon was born um, the brokerage company um, so we're a brokerage and distribution company um, and I basically do everything um, myself I do sales uh, warehousing logistics um, transfers from wineries invoicing deliveries you name it um, so I, I have about a hundred um, accounts in in Oregon um, uh, mainly in the Portland metro area the Willamette Valley Eugene Salem and Bend mm -hmm. and then a few out on the coast as well but um, yeah it's uh, I'm, I'm on the road a lot I'm selling a bunch of wine for other people um, delicious good value um, I really don't like to use this word but um, artisanally made you know true handcrafted wines um, and um, and authentic and and, um, and and that's it really that's yeah the wines need to be honest and well made delicious with more or less minimal handling so. mm -hmm.
when you started Consolon, was there a, did you have a, a goal in the beginning, like an overall goal, and, and yeah. have, have you achieved it, or have you changed the goal, or? Um, it hasn't changed so much. Um, I, I always wanted to be small. I, I didn't, I wanted to work for myself. I did not want to have to manage a large group of people. Um, I mean, it's already, um, it's, all, it's already quite a challenge to uh, manage the logistics of, uh, you know, 10 or 12 wineries, uh, portfolios and, and getting those out to the right people to taste them and buy them. Um, so an added layer of personnel was not appealing to me. Um, and so I've always tried to avoid that. And um, I had somebody work for me for a very short period of time as a kind of a sub broker for me. Um, but you know, it's it's tough work. You know, you're out there pounding the pavements for uh, eight to 10 hours a day and then processing orders and chasing up on people. So that didn't really work out and I'm not really surprised. Um, you've got to be very committed to it um, as a, you know, as a way of making a living wine sales is probably not the most glamorous. Um, and, and so to go back to your question, yeah, I have, I've pretty much kept everything as I envisaged it from the start. Um, simple business model, take care of the people that are taking care of you mm -hmm. um, and that you know I'm kind of feel like I'm piggy in the middle um, I have two very very different sets of clients on either side of me the clients which are the wineries who are entrusting us with their product um, and the placements of their product mm -hmm. um, the marketing and then on the other side the restaurateurs sommeliers uh, retail specialist retailers who are entrusting us with bringing them the right wines to taste and select from and not wasting their time and supporting them as well. You know, a lot of the, the budget that I have in Consolon um, is, is about uh, supporting those people. So if there are wine dinners or um, uh, the retailers are bringing in, you know, these weird and wonderful things from South Africa, um, I'll go and, you know, buy those wines and use those for research and development. And, um, I think it's important to, to, to you know, budget um, the support of the people that are supporting you. Um, and that leads to some really interesting um, professional relationships that have grown, um, grown into, into collaborations now. Um, so yeah, we're a small portfolio, always wanted to be a small portfolio. That is, you know, less than 15 um, producers. I currently have 11, 12. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you find your, that clients are coming to you or that you're seeking out specific people who you think would be interesting? It's a mixture. It's about a 50-50 split. Um, so uh, if we have a you know, two to three year kind of um, work schedule with people, I often find that, it, you know, I often say that if Consolon's done its job properly, um, people should be looking for larger distributors within a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, I can only cover so much ground. I can only sell so much wine. We're not trying to sell a large volume of wine, as silly as that sounds. We're not trying to, you know, dump pallets of wine into uh, supermarkets that will remain unnamed. Um, it's, uh, it works for some brands, not for the people that we're, we're working for. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I imagine, as, as I'm in this position as a winery as well, my, um, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly looking for you know, larger distribution, maybe not in, in, in Oregon, but people that can do it more efficiently and um, uh, in, in, in other states. Um, 
so yeah, I've had people approach me. Um, we have a, a mixture of people that I will and won't take on for various reasons. Like I'm not, I'm not there as like, um, like a, I'm there as a brand ambassador. I'm not there to uh, to help develop a brand. So um, I think that the people we 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 are attracted to work with have already they already have their um, brand established mentally. Mm -hmm. um, and um, all they all they really need is to get that in front of the right people to buy it, um, because yeah, there's there are a lot of people that think that um, the I think the easiest part of the wine industry is actually making it. Um, my, my, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. Um, that's not to say that winemakers don't work really hard. And, and it's and it's a constant battle to hone skills and obviously, um, but 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 sales, uh, sales is 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 very unrewarding at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the most unromantic part of the business, um, and and so if you have a good um, story um, that is authentic, and you have a good product. Um, then, then you are well on your way to to success in sales, um, and then that's where companies like Consolon can step in and really get it out there. Mm -hmm. um, but but um, there are a lot of people that are making delicious wines, um, and 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 have forgotten about the value part of it and the the story. Um, you know, we're in an age where it's just not good enough to make delicious wine anymore it, it's un it's very unfortunate um, we, some some wine drinking cultures are perhaps different from what we see in the US in my in, in, in my um, experience I've I think a lot of the more classic growing and market regions of Europe um, probably put less emphasis on the story or um, on being different and uh, hip and more on what's in the bottle, and I think that's healthy. Um, a healthy respect of what's going on in the bottle is probably way more important than, you know, if somebody wears a certain brand of clothes or <laughs> drinks a certain beer during harvest or whatever. But um, it, it's all it's all part of it's all part of it. You know, we're our drinkers are very much engaged in in brands, mm -hmm. and, uh, and and that's and that's fine. That's that's the world we live in, and that's what we need to. It's what we need to do to keep up. What are the what are the stories that you find resonate with when you're trying to sell wine? What stories mm. are there that are the yeah. that are the easiest to sell or the that the make the most yeah. success? That's that's a really great question and something I I uh, have have pondered, <clears throat> um, and it's and it's hard because why why are we thinking about it? We don't want to. So authenticity is just really important, um, and so that can take a lot of that can take a lot of different, um, that can come from a lot of different angles, right? Um, and, and I think, I think the, the, the wine consumer that we really want to capture, it's an, a large segment of the wine drinking population of, say, the Pacific Northwest, uh, they can smell a rat a mile off. Mm -hmm. um, so be just telling the story as it is, not designing anything, 
Um, you know, if you're out at the weekend hunting ducks, that's fine. You know, tell that story um, if that's relevant to your your wine brand. Um, if you are out there pruning vines and you own the property and you're making the wine from that vineyard and that 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 is of course relevant, then tell that story. Um, if you're not, don't tell that story. Um, you know, be be authentic. You know, I just bought all of these grapes and they're great value, and I'm dipping my toe in the water. Like you know, there are lots of like startups and they're doing they're making great wine and they're not growing their own grapes and, and they're just as successful and deserve just as much um, um, recognition. Um, we all take different paths in the wine industry. We're all different as producers, hopefully. Um, we're not, that, that is the beautiful thing I think that's happened in the last decade is we're, we're, we're moving away from, you know, reviewers uh, likes and dislikes and and so we're making wines as producers we're making wines that we want to make and that our customers want to drink not what 20 or 30 international reviewers are loving stylistically um, so sorry to not really answer your question but I think that um, I think that just telling an authentic story whatever that might be yeah i have a few i have a few people in mind that are like complete opposite ends of the spectrum for their approach of their wine businesses wine pro wine production businesses um one has very little experience in the industry and is absolutely and and the style of wine they're making is not particularly to my liking but they are crushing it out there in the market um, because their story is great and like if I don't like the wine that doesn't matter I'm not buying it hundreds of thousands of other people are enjoying it or thousands of other people are enjoying it and and buying it and that's what's important and then at the other end of the spectrum the guy that's making in my opinion some of the greatest wines in the Willamette Valley is 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 doing well but he should be doing better um, and and um, there's no rhyme or reason to it but he's also telling a very authentic story and yes yeah, there are ebbs and flows in the industry mm -hmm. if, if I could um, if I could I was going to ask you at the beginning if you had a crystal ball because you were going to ask me a question about what the future holds for the wine industry um, if I had that I would I, I would use it every single day um, there, there, there's no rhyme or reason to this um, um, I think hard work persistence um, not um, um, yeah, it's the same thing not giving up just just mm -hmm. keep, keep keep going keep your focus um, and uh, one day you'll be in the right place at the right time. That's what I tell my producers that are having a tough time. Yeah, I don't believe in luck, uh, but I but someone very um, recently said to me, luck is kind of like being in the right place at the right time. Um, circumstantial luck, not yeah, nothing more. Yeah. So, you, so your role in this is also you're, you're kind of like a guidance counselor too. You, you're, you're keeping people on the on the track and, and giving yeah. them support when 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 they're struggling. Yeah, I think it's being brutally honest with people. Um, so not not giving them um, not giving them the advice they necessarily want to hear. Um, it's authenticity as well, right? 
Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, what I see in the marketplace, I relay directly. We, we are very transparent in what we do. Um, you know, if somebody doesn't like, if one person that I show wines to don't, don't like it, it's not a big deal. If I show the wine to 20 people and they're all saying the same thing, it's important that we're not here to sort of boost egos. We're here to sell wine and um, we're, we're here to relay the message. I, f I feel like Consolon, didn't mention this at the beginning, but it was designed to be a conduit um, between direct communication um, between the consumer or the sommelier, the wine buyer, and the producer. So we're kind of an extension to uh, the winery, even though we're we're employed as contractors. Uh, we see ourselves very much as um, as 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 part of their team, part of twelve teams, and. Um, yeah, there's no like ego massaging. Um, you know, we do a good job, great. Let's pat ourselves on the back, move on. Um, if the job isn't getting done satisfactorily, then we need to figure out why. Um, and that could be my fault. It could be uh, delivery logistics. It could be any any number of things. It could be winemaking. Um, but yeah, it's figuring out what the problems are and solving them. So let's talk about you, the producer, then as well. So at some mm -hmm. point along the way, you decided you needed another thing to do and decided to make to make some wine. So tell me about how yeah. that how that came about. Yeah, well, I wasn't working evenings. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why not? Well, um, so it, it really came about. Um, I was lucky that my my first client um, at Consolon was a gentleman by the name of Peter Jacoby. He's now my business partner in in one one of the wineries uh, that I help make the wine for. It's called Proteus, and um, in I started working with him in 2015, and he asked me um, about um, helping in the in the cellar at some point, and really sort of we were tasting together. I was helping him put blends together for his wines, and that was going really well. And coming up for the 2016 vintage, we'd worked together for about a year. Coming up to vintage 2016. And he offered me um, a space in the corner to, to really make a little bit of wine, one barrel, how hard can it be? <laughs> um, and and, and, and at, that, at that point, I was like, yeah, that, this is, could be kind of cool because I, it's, only one, it's only one barrel. It won't take up too much of my time. I can better understand, and this, is, this was what Ari was really born out of, it's a project to better understand the intricacies of um, and the biz and the business of a small winery in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. That that's it. Um, and then the product is honed constantly um, to offer the purest expression of, in this case, Gamay and um, and value. Um, I was at a point, my, I'd, I'd done a couple of vintages. As a sommelier, I, I used to go off to Burgundy. Um, and so I always worked at the same uh, little domain uh, called Domaine Mouzard. Um, they're, they're, they're based in the southern part of the Côte de Beaune in a little village called Santonet. And um, I was basically a cellar rat there. I was, I was on very good terms with the brothers who ran the, um, ran the estate. I was buying a lot of wine from them when I worked in Paris. And um, they, were, they ended up becoming like family. Um, so I was afforded um, a kind of um, 
a mentorship in winery operations with them. They were kind of on the cusp. They weren't t teeny tiny. They had a few employees working for them in the cellar and they weren't like a massive corporation. Um, so I saw kind of, um, I saw both sides of that coin um, in production. And I had a friend in the Adelaide Hills who had uh, just a gorgeous um, little vineyard and winery called Wisson Lake. And I'd worked for him, Mark Wisson, um, on a number of occasions when I, was in, when I was based in Adelaide. So I'd had this kind of very romantic view, like I would dip in and out of cellars. Um, I thought I knew uh, my way, I knew the difference between a hose and a tank. <laughs> um, you know, we all, yeah, we all start somewhere. I feel like I, I'd done, you know, uh, a collectively about a 15-week apprenticeship over the space of five years. It was, it was very, uh, it was nothing, a very small amount of time. Um, and, and so when I studied RE, I really it, it, the project was more about what I could gain um, what kind of an education I could gain um, on how difficult it was to make fine wine and make a profit from it um, and obviously economies of scale were working against me um, but we we made it happen um, the biggest part of the the um, and, and 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 I was I was well aware of this from day one. But you know, one of our biggest expenses as as a small winery is rent, and I didn't have that, um, so I was already kind of ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. um, but everything else was paid for in cash, and um, we sourced some bloody delicious fruit um, from the now Vanduza Corridor AVA from a grower down there, um, who was quite well known for his gamay. And um, I enlisted the um, unpaid help of two um, amazing winemakers in the valley um, who have remained friends and have kind of helped me along the way every vintage, you know, text messaging frantically in the middle of vintages. It's, yeah, get it, getting those text message answered within a couple of hours is always really encouraging. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so uh, they, they kind of helped me along my, along my path. Um, and, you know, we just, we basically turned out one barrel and it sold out within 10 days of release after bottling and labeling. And I said, well, I should do this again. Um, you know, let's not do one barrel, let's do two or three. Right, and it starts to snowball. Um, and I should say that 2016 was a difficult, um, wasn't a difficult vintage necessarily. It was an easy vintage for us, but um, everything was new. And my now business partner Peter at Proteus had some help in the cellar, who bailed pretty quickly when he realised I was there. So I don't think his heart was in it. And then me being there as well just added a little bit of stress <laughs> to his day. And, uh, and he, 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 he threw in the towel, <laughs> as it were. So I actually made the Proteus wines in 2016 with, with, with Peter. Peter was more hands-on than he wanted to be, I think, that vintage. So we kind of muddled through that. Wines were delicious. And yeah, we've, yeah, we've sold those and they're... They got good, got a few very good um, accounts that have now become um, 
more important for us, I would say, mm-hmm. as we've developed uh, both console and RE um, as businesses, they've become more and more important. So yeah, everything everything's connected. It's like a web. <laughs> yeah. So with Ari specifically, why did you choose to go with, just with Gamay? Um, it really goes back to that time in Beaujolais. Um, like, I thought I knew. I thought I knew about wine. Um, I thought I knew. I thought I understood wine, um, but I really didn't um, until until those until that year. Um, traveling up and down to Beaujolais with Tim, there was like the penny dropped. I said, you know, just you can taste all these amazing bottles of wine um, and have like zero appreciation for them. Um, I love to taste old, rare, expensive bottles of wine um, that are classically made, but I, but I also enjoy well I enjoy the business aspect of wine and business is sales and the more sales you can make the more interesting it is for me so an early drinking wine made sense mm-hmm. um, I toyed with the idea of Pinot Noir but because of the situation that I was making the wines in, I really wanted to avoid Pinot if I could. I didn't want to compete directly with Proteus Estate Pinot Noir that I was also making. Um, and the Beaujolais thing made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many reasons why Gamay is delicious. Um, most people probably have covered covered it <laughs> in interviews. Um, uh, you know, it's refreshing. It, it, look, wine can be made in any number of ways, but Gamay wants to be refreshing. Um, here in the valley, it doesn't get like it. It doesn't get horribly ripe, so um, we are not kind of fighting low acid and high alcohol. So it's for want of a better term, beautifully balanced, naturally quite well balanced. And um, it doesn't need, you can put some new oak on it if you want, but it doesn't need it. So there you go, there you could you could basically just save, you know, a thousand dollars on a new barrel if you, you know, if you want. If you've got, if you don't have a lot of money to spend, you don't have to and still make pretty darn delicious uh, dry red wine. Um, and, you know, the closer you can keep that wine to home, the less expensive it, it is and the more you know, greater your profit margins. So uh, that made uh, good sense to me. Um, and seeing that there was a lot of Pinot Noir uh, already being sold locally, it was like, let's cut through that noise and, and put in. And, and I think, you know, the same thing can be said for Melon de Bourgogne that is doing quite well in the valley and you know Alagote which is kind of uh, getting quite a quite a following mm-hmm. um, you know as opposed to Chardonnay um, you know, we probably it's I don't think we find many uh, people in the valley that would argue that Chardonnay is a, is amazing here and it but it's it, it there's fear that it's going to go the same route as Pinot Noir um, uh, that not everybody is going to make it to the best level they can. 
so, so early on, you're you're just so still kind of learning winemaking, and now you're making a gamay for yourself. You're making a pinot as well. Mm -hmm. What are the what are the what are mm -hmm. the what are you learning? What is it you didn't know that you're learning, and, and what are the differences between making a gamay and a pinot? Well, there's no doubt about it. The um, as long as you don't design the wine to be anything other than it doesn't want or want to be already, um, then the wines are going to taste differently because we really don't do anything very much different. Um, we use a little bit of whole cluster um, in both the Gamay and the Pinot Noir. Um, I do, I, I make a, a, a wine for a good friend of mine, a restaurateur in Newburgh who is Italian, and he approached me a couple of years ago to um, collaborate on um, a wine that is most definitely manipulated. Um, like, you, there's no doubt about it. This thing is made in the, in the, um, uh, a passamento style um, um, of wine, which um, is basically air drying grapes. So it's 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 picking them um, and storing them for weeks, sometimes months, um, in um, in cold storage with with fans. And it's labour intensive. We need to turn the bunches every day. I, I'm really not set up for it until this coming year we're not set up for it in a classical way everything is just basically sterilized pick bins um, so that's a, that is a that is a manipulated wine like it's naturally manipulated <laughs> I mean we're not we're not doing anything apart from setting up a few fans and putting them in the coldest part of the cellar um, underneath the air con an air conditioning unit that I have um, and then turning them every bunch every day uh, a ton of a ton of grapes, which ends up being uh, just just a little over half a ton. We lose about just about 50% of our um, volume on that wine. Um, so uh, to go back to your question, anything that is made, bless you, anything that is made um, without that kind of manipulation is made in a very similar fashion. Um, so the two white white and and pink wines that I make, or orange wines that I make are made in a similar fashion. Uh, that's a little bit of skin contact and um, or varying degrees of skin contact and then uh, uh, settled cold uh, in, in, in tanks for overnight in a cold situation and then barreled down and, and sp spontaneously fermented and I make a, a Pinot Gris and, and a white Pinot Noir and they taste very different and they're made from two different grape varieties, uh, but they're made in the same cellars with the same, you know, old barrels mm -hmm. and nothing much else. Um, a little bit of filtration if needed, um, but yeah, not not really, not not really anything. Like I'm, I'm kind of, um, I, I wouldn't say I'm a natural winemaker because um, I will, I'll do things if I need to, but um, it's not like part of the program. Mm -hmm. um, I've learned that it's harder to stop yourself doing something as a winemaker than it is, just as it's hard not to grow. Um, uh, you know, like I said before, one barrel easily becomes five. It's much harder to say, I'm just gonna do one barrel of wine. Um, it's, it's very tempting to tweak, to grow, to, I mean, that's our, that's our uh, natural instincts as humans, I think. And I'm curious, I have a curious mind, or have a restless mind, and um, so my, most of my concentration is on, uh, is, is on what's happening at that very moment, and, and, then, and then just absorbing that. Um, not, not saying, well now I need to do this to it, or wouldn't it be fun if we tried this? 
like that those conversations I try to have before vintage mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to plan um, so that's what I'm learning I'm learning patience I'm learning um, um, learning record keeping <laughs> <laughs> I hate paperwork um, <laughs> Yeah, um, and and I'm for, so I'm forced to do things like that, which mm -hmm. is which is all part of the process, mm -hmm. and and unromantic but necessary. I'm curious about the the decision making aspects you're talking about mm -hmm. and the preparation aspects. Mm -hmm. uh, you're still pretty new to winemaking to, mm -hmm. to, to production. The the confidence. Where does the confidence come from to make those kind of decisions to make those kind of reactions? Yeah. Um, some of it's instinctual. Um, but some of it is uh, reinforced by 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 friends, mm -hmm. peers mm -hmm. in the industry. Uh, we're we're lucky to have. Um, I'm not entrenched in um, like council. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm not like yeah. I don't, there's no like I'm not part of some kind of like winemaking fraternity mm -hmm. here. Um, like like some others, um, but uh, there are a few people that um, I've considered a good like good people to bounce ideas off of, and and you know there are many there are many times that the most uh, mundane of situations occur on my fermentations, and and I'm still just not a hundred percent confident. So I'll shoot off some you know chemical analysis or some photographs or some descriptions of things that are going on to a couple of people who have way more experience than I do, both academically and practically in the wine industry. And they'll be like, you don't need to worry, or yeah, I might want to check back on it in a couple of days, and you might want to do this or that, mm -hmm. and this or that might be warming up you know giving it a little pump over um uh it's not it's not more than that i make i make the wines in a way that feels good um to best achieve balance mm -hmm. that that is it and and balance for me is freshness um savoriness tooths a toothsome quality to the wine i like to say um that's maybe a little bit gritty like like sea salt and that's white and red wines and I really like that aspect somebody tasted my wine yesterday and they said yeah I really like that kind of you know that like potassium thing that you get with the with the whole cluster and any any it's exactly right you know he broke it down to exactly what is going on there and we can use fancy words like minerality and you know verve and whatever but at the end of the day you know we all use different terms and I was like you nailed it buddy you absolutely nailed it there's you know there's so much going on in wine um, to try to understand it is absolutely enthralling um, to actually understand it is frustrating and I'm I'm kind of the artistic end of the spectrum um, I I prefer to allow things to just develop on their own and appreciate them for what they are and but 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 know that they can go wrong and we that kind of like little kids you just want to like guide them you know you know don't have to always hold them by the hands you don't have to put them on a leash but but basically um you know if you see them going to run in the road like grab their hand and stop them and it's it's the same thing with winemaking we we peter and i say that the that the the winery during during vintage and then and then the the barrel room afterwards is like a nursery you know 
it's good if there's nothing bad happening. That's it. Nothing at all. Complete quiet. Great. <laughs> like, if there's a commotion, that's when you need to start worrying. So all the time there's quiet, we, we just want to pop our heads in every now and again, give them a little... Uh, Give them a little nudge in the right direction and we're good. Yeah, keep them warm. <laughs> you were talking before about your, your kind of role through Consolon and the kind of, the kind of brutal honesty. You're, you're selling this product, but you're also mm. providing feedback. I'm curious how that changes now that you are, you have a product that, is, that is, has your name on it. Uh, how, does, yeah. how, do you, how does that work for you? Do you, do you feel yeah. more compassion and sympathy for people who are making wine? Do you feel, how do you handle it for yourself? Who are your, who are, who are your sounding boards? Well, um, that's another great question, Rich. And, and, and yeah, I've, I've come to appreciate the fact that um, a face for the wine product is really important. And um, I have encouraged my producers to get out there in the market, even though they have me <laughs> um, and that, that I'm paid to do that that it is equally important for them to go out there because <clears throat> I take orders for my own wines um, just because I'm present. Um, often, you know, we'll get into it. It's, it's, very, it's very difficult, it's a fine line. Um, I'm obviously working for a bunch of producers who trust me to go and sell their wine and then I'm also selling my wine alongside it. And it's using what can be perceived as an unfair advantage to as an advantage to those producers in that I better understand the intricacies of winemaking and I can talk more about what they're doing because I've done it myself mm -hmm. and less about well don't worry about these wines this is mine like I mean there's <laughs> it goes back to authenticity mm -hmm. and you either trust somebody to go out and sell your wine or you don't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I always encourage people uh, to think about diversifying their portfolio away from the usual thing, which is, you know, right now, uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, um, if that interests them, because it's easier to sell other wines because it's easier to cut through noise if you have a different product. So that's one example. Um, I think buyers are more honest with me because they know that I understand production. Mm -hmm. So I get uh, more honest feedback for my product and my other producers' mm -hmm. wines. Um, yeah, there's, it, it's, it's definitely a fine line and it's something I think about every day is uh, how I present the console on portfolio. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, is it is it different getting honest feedback on your own product and, and how, how have you how have you dealt with that uh yeah it's uh just um so i treat my product exactly when i'm selling it i treat my product exactly like everybody else's um so uh yes i can speak to the production and you know, the ripeness at, at harvest and all of those other things and when and how it was bottled with or without filtration and marketing decisions for the labels but at the end of the day if somebody doesn't like it i just it's well people are people are for the most part kind <laughs> even if they don't buy it or they don't like it they you know we're not dealing uh, not dealing with a bunch of uh, 
you know, mean is out there. Buyers, buyers are, they get a bad rap, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm in a luxurious position of choosing who I want to work with as well. So no doubt there are some gruff buyers and I definitely deal with a few, but not certainly not the majority of people I deal with. And um, I would say that most, most people are just really curious mm -hmm. Um, we, you know, there's, it's a double-edged sword as well. We're dealing with uh, the, the demographics of buyers in Portland in particular is getting um, younger, more dynamic, but also less experienced, but also more curious. So, um, the, yeah, we're, we're very lucky that the people that are starting to kind of show up and become the influencers as you know, as sommeliers and, and specialist retailers in the Portland metro area in particular are very thoughtful. Um, and, that, and that goes in the way that they deal with um, their purveyors as well. Mm -hmm. You know, they're sport for choice, for sure. I mean, yeah, let's just <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> they have a lot of choice, mm -hmm. way more choice than I had. <laughs> <laughs> I used to work with maybe 10 portfolios in San Francisco, maybe a little more, but it wasn't an enormous amount. I've heard people say that they're dealing with 30, 40 purveyors where they're buying one or two SKUs. And that would be kind of with Consolon. A lot of people that I deal with only buy one or two wines from me, um, which must be frustrating. It's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of, logistical stuff you need to contend with you know if you've got you know 30 different orders coming in it's much easier just to go to a big you know national distribution company and just buy everything you want from you know mm -hmm. 5,000 producers that they have in their portfolio but yeah good so that we it's like anything with we're it's an uphill battle but isn't everything that's worth doing an uphill battle um, I mean, that's it. Head down, bum up. <laughs> Keep going. Did, I, did we cover all the projects? Is there anything else you're working on now that, that we should be talking about? Um, yeah, no, that's about it. Uh, I mean, I've always got a little something. Um, uh, we, we started a little honey project on the side at Proteus. Um, we've yet to come up with a really good name for it, so I'm selling I'm selling the honey that's produced on the property as both Proteus and Ari, mm -hmm. um, and we're we're just dealing with about a dozen um, uh, a dozen people that are buying it right now, restaurants, um, and I sell it to a few friends and family. Um, but yeah, that's something that um, is really interesting. Mm -hmm. I like to see biodiversity in the vineyard at Proteus um, that was farmed. Uh, I wouldn't say horribly, but it wasn't it wasn't in quote unquote regenerative viticulture, um, and now we're moving every year more and more towards that. Um, it's important steps, and so we've introduced. We have a great apiarist that is based down in um, Salem. Um, John Rockra, and he placed a few hives on the property. He was amazed at the amount of honey that was produced from those hives. So we're we're putting more hives, dotting them through the the property, and and the honey was just going to go back to him. He was going to buy it and blend it with his other properties, 
and I was like, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. Like we have, you know, our, both our neighbours at Proteus are um, sustainably or, or organically farmed, and you know we know that the you know the bees will go collect pollen from a lot further than our three estates basically but um, we're pretty confident that we give them uh, as much food as we can on the property so wildflowers and blackberry bushes are I mean <laughs> we don't always like them but they they, they when they blossom um, it's good for the bees mm -hmm. and they're under a, a bunch of uh, beautiful uh, Montmorency cherry trees that we have on our border of our property and our neighbours so um, yeah that's a new little project that's just started and it's a it's it's very very low investment um, and uh, it's an excellent product that's really delicious um, uh, I I'm excited to I'm excited to be able to offer something from that estate that's not wine um, and that's it mm -hmm. And then, yeah, a bunch of little custom projects. I'm making a little bit of Chardonnay and single barrel Pinot Noir for a restaurant in Portland. Um, another barrel of Pinot Noir that's always custom made for a, a great restaurant over in Bend in Central Oregon. And then the Apasamento project, which is called Bandito. Um, it's Ari Aeternum Bandito. Um, and that is, uh, that's my, my buddy Dario's uh, brand for his restaurant, Rosemarino in, in um, in Newburgh. Lots of little things. It's a web. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you see as you, as you look ahead for yourself? Uh, you, you have a lot of things in the air right now, a lot of kind of newish yeah. projects. Yeah. What, what, what's happened in the next 10 years? I, you know, what I would like to happen and what actually will happen, well, like, you know, we can, we can only guess. Um, but uh, it's, I'd, I'd like to continue focusing on building other other people's brands. I think uh, Consolon has a lot to offer, um, so that's always been exciting for me. It uh, it pays my living, um, and it pays uh, to get other projects started at times, um, and that's and that's great. And I love to you know I love to see small family uh, wineries kind of get the recognition and the support that they deserve in the in the local in the local market um, so I think that there wouldn't be much change there um, Ari will grow to probably we have capacity to to do about a thousand maybe 1500 cases tops at Proteus and so between Ari, the little custom projects that I do for restaurants and the Proteus brand, um, we'll see a little bit of an increase in production, but not much. We're, Proteus is, is very much um, constrained to the estate. Mm -hmm. um, if we buy fruit, then it needs to go under a different label or a different skew, at least, a non-estate wine. So right now, everything is estate, um, and, I'm, and, I'm, and, I like, and I like that. Um, it's only three acres, and we only produce uh, you know a few hundred cases a year, three, three to four hundred cases a year. So we've you know we can put in a little bit more um, vineyard there, but um, n no more than would give us uh, you know a hundred or two hundred more cases. Not you know not an enormous. So so we see a small a small change there. Um, I've I maybe go back to some some stuff in hospitality. Um, we'll see with it. We'll see where Proteus Estate takes us. But um, if I could do a little in, 
or something like that. That would appeal to me. Mm -hmm. um, so getting back to you know my cooking and um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, with. But, this, but the but the plan is to stay in Oregon. Yeah, you, absolutely. This is where yeah. you are. I love I love it here. Yeah, I suppose I I hadn't really thought about that. Um, certainly no plans to leave. No, I kind of feel like I found home for the first time in uh, many years. I enjoyed living in Paris. I enjoyed living in Adelaide. That's uh, where my parents live. Um, and uh, and I have step siblings there. But um, I I feel like Oregon is where I it's. It's not a surprise to me that over the last few years, the population of Portland in particular and the Willamette Valley has grown. Um, it's a beautiful place, like aesthetically. Um, it's easy It's easy and clean for the most part. I mean, every, every city has its challenges with growth, but um, I think that uh, Portland has a bright future culinarily. Um, obviously, the um, uh, the wine industry is now more or less well established. We we, we could say um, the the I think the hard work has been done, and that that is getting Willamette Valley recognised on an international level as producing seriously good wine consistently. Um, and by consistently, I mean you know over twenty five years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't see myself leaving, mm -hmm. unless I get a job offer to, I don't know where. <laughs> I can't think of a better place, honestly. Um, oh, somebody said, oh, I'll give you a domain in Burgundy. I'd say there's probably someone better to give it to. But, um, but yeah, that, that, would be a, that would be a hard one to pass up, <laughs> for sure. I'm curious, before you came to Oregon, what, if any, impression you had of the Oregon wine industry? Yeah, um, I think it's pretty similar to, to, to how I perceive it now. Um, I'd spent, I'd, I'd visited a few times. Mm -hmm. So prior to that, I, I didn't have any opinion. I had probably tasted a few Pinot Noir um, and liked them a lot. You know, the classic wines from those first and second, kind of the, the pioneers and then that second kind of um, uh, flow of, of pioneer producers um, and uh, definitely thought that the wines that I tasted were perhaps underappreciated and, um, and, 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 and terrific value. Um, I'm thinking about a bottle in particular um, that, I, that I tasted of uh, David Letts wines that was made in the 80s and um and and thought yeah yeah just just thinking about how uh small uh the willamette valley is and and the quality of wine that's being produced in it was 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 always like awe inspiring mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, it, and it and it remains that way i mean i think we we um unfortunately get accustomed and you know we settle into routines and everything becomes familiar and not quite as surprising to us but but uh, when being asked a question like that uh, it's it's good to be reminded mm -hmm. of how lucky we are mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. so, and that's one reason I want to stay it's like it's uh, yeah, 
I'm extremely lucky. You talked about your, your tour of Beaujolais and that kind of aha moment for you. Was it something similar in terms of kind of good product, underappreciated, will be something in the future? Is that kind of your Oregon impression? Uh, yeah, I probably wasn't living. I, it, definitely things had gathered pace by the time I decided to move here, mm -hmm. um, at the end of 2014. Um, but, but, but yes. It's funny, I think that um, Oregon natives still say, you know, we're going to be big and famous one day. I'm like, yeah, I think that's already happened, guys. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, they, I think when you live in the play, you don't see how much it's appreciated outside. And obviously we're producing, you know, we're producing a product that, you know, its success is about how far and wide it's spread across the world. So you don't see it, right? You, you hear about it, but you don't actually, unless you're visiting all these places and you see wines pop up on lists that you're familiar with mm -hmm. in, at the other end of the world, it's, it's hard to appreciate that, um, especially for, for people that are not in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, I, you know, I believe you've already arrived. Um, we, we've already arrived. I, mean, I, I, I feel like I, I'm not yet kind of completely entrenched. I, I feel like I'm working in the industry in a region that has its identity, but I'm perhaps not part of that identity mm -hmm. yet. It's just five, six years now for mm -hmm. me. So yeah, in 20 years from now, maybe I'll be like, sure. Maybe it'll be we instead of you or they. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get that. If I, but, it feels, but it feels good to be here, and yeah. What do you see as you look ahead for the industry? Obviously, you mentioned your crystal ball that we don't have, unfortunately. Yeah. What do you maybe hope the industry looks like, and maybe what do you fear could happen? Um, I think I share the same fears uh, as, as most small producers in the Valley, um, and that is that there could be an overemphasis on the brand, Oregon, and Willamette Valley, it's a very fine line we have to tread. Um, and with, with successful brands comes greed, and with greed often arrives um, big changes that are more focused on the dollar signs mm -hmm. <clears throat> than more important things like sustainability um, and, 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 and life. Human life and other life. Um, so I, that that scares me. Um, too many large corporations arriving and snatching up, taking advantage of smaller um, holdings that are perhaps potentially more profitable than they are currently. So. People like Consolon, and there are a lot of other small brokers that are trying to do the right thing and emphasize how important small mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. production mm -hmm. is and, and, and looking after small teams um, is really important. Mm -hmm. And so I'd, I think that there are going, there's going to be a defense of the small farmer. I hope there's going to be a defense of the small farmer um, on every level. Um, and in every every sort of sector, I should say. So not not just grape growing, but um, the other you know wonderful um, you know small uh, hazelnut farmers and and other orchards and you know even you know nurseries. I think it's, it's important to to see to see all of those people thrive 
um, and not be, you know, not be consumed by large corporations. Mm -hmm. um, and a return to a better balance of consuming local. I think we do a pretty good job, but we can always do better. Um, and that, that goes for every, you know, again, not just wine, but, but, um, but um, foods that we consume mm -hmm. as well. Instead of bringing in stuff from the other side of the country or other outside in other countries, we can probably farm it here and do do a better job of supporting that. Um, you know, our economy is 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 pretty good here. I think in the state, so we can afford it. We're not, you know, we're not strapped. If someone were to come to you, and it probably has happened, if someone were to come to you and ask for your advice on getting into the Oregon wine industry on some level, what would your words of wisdom be? Um, be prepared to work hard. Um, be prepared to um, align yourself with like-minded individuals who um, will will help. Um, I think it, collaboration is really important. Um, be willing to help others when you can, and be willing to accept the help of others. Um, I think uh, I think we, we, we struggle with that as, as business owners and uh, anyone with an entrepreneurial spirit um, might might agree that the hardest thing to do is accepting assistance from others um, so it's, I would say those two things and yeah be just don't waver from your from your goal um, that would that would be it whatever that might be and there's no right or wrong there's no you know silver bullet um, it, um, Although there is a silver bullet, it's called it's called hard work. <laughs> My grandfather used to say elbow grease. That's it. So I, this was just from my own personal curiosity here, because you have such an interesting range of career careers. Uh, you have uh, back of house chef. Uh, you have front of house. You have sommelier. You have cellar master, making your own wine, yeah. selling other people's wine. What do you prefer? What's your favorite part of, of, of oh. favorite role that you've had? Um, so I, I think it's hard for me to really pinpoint a favorite um, because every every choice I've made um, in my career has been right at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so when I look back, you know, was I ever unhappy as a chef? No. I was unhappy with other things, but the cooking part of it, no, okay, I, I adored that. The creativity part. Um, what I, what I, th I would say, I'm most happy doing what I'm doing now, and that's why I'm doing it mm -hmm. right now. Um, and that isn't fulfilled in one area. Mm -hmm. Hence why I, I have the three different kind of aspects, the three companies, um, you know, being able to help somebody else bring their dream to fruition, or as I like to say in the wine industry, not lo lose a bucket load of money, um, <laughs> is really is, is really fun. And then uh, using my creativity in producing something, like I, I, I suppose I really enjoy watching other people enjoy my work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's the most rewarding thing so however i can get that i'm happy mm -hmm. whether that's standing table side and serving wine or pouring a taste of wine behind a bar or in a cellar or pulling a sample from a barrel or making that barrel of wine or mm -hmm. cleaning that barrel it's all 
it's all part it's all part of the the process yeah that's all the questions that i have for you is there anything Thanks, <laughs> anything i didn't ask that i should have asked anything we didn't cover that we should have covered um no i think i, th I feel i feel good about that right, interview excellent thank good. you so much rich thank you so much for sharing your time with us for sharing all your stories uh, and uh, and your in your amazing career path so far, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Very kind. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, and thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.